0: You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Extended. Hi, this is Peter Johnson from aerospace radio station Extended. And we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's he's been something of of an unsung hero of the American space programme, outside those who have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. Some people will call you mad, some people will call you heroes, uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's it's an amazing project to, to pull together from literally from scratch. And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure. So why not give us a listen? If you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry, come over and give us a visit.
1: Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended.
0: Extended. Extended. (laughs) The Wings Over New Zealand Show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz.
2: Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand Show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand Show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, I talk with Wing Commander Chris Pote of the Royal Air Force, who in November and December 2018 fulfilled a lifelong dream to fly an aircraft halfway around the world from Britain to New Zealand as part of the RAF-100 centenary celebrations. I spoke with Chris via Skype, because he's back home in Britain now, and we talk about his journey in the little Eurofox, G GBNZ. Ah, uh, welcome to the Wings of New Zealand show, Chris Pote. I'd like to uh, just uh, start off by asking you a little bit about your background and and uh, you know where you grew up, because I know your father Jonathan uh, very well here in New Zealand, and I know that he was in the RAF. So did that have an influence on you growing up?
1: Yes, to an extent. Uh, uh, my father's always been uh, very interested in aeroplanes uh, and um, although he, he was not regular RAF, he um, joined the uh, Royal Air Force as an Auxiliary Doctor. Um, but I, I was fortunate enough to uh, grow up right next to Royal Air Force Chivna in uh, North Devon uh, and having the Hawks uh, fly over the, uh, both of my schools, my, my primary school and uh, my secondary school on, uh, on the approach, uh, certainly uh, got my attention with the idea of, well, I will work hard here and and try and do that in the future.
2: Right, Okay. Well, that's pretty cool. Um, So tell me about your sort of getting into the Air Force and and, um, your sort of path through the training and and getting into the jets,
1: just just briefly. Well, I followed a fairly classic route. Um, I uh, joined the University Air Squadron at uh, university, which is a fantastic opportunity to... um, uh, get free flying training, but also the uh, Royal Air Force gets gets a look at you. Uh, so I did 120 hours on, on the Bulldog. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed that yep. uh, and uh, was thankfully selected both for the RAF and for the fast jet stream. Um, and off, after officer training, uh, went to fly the Tucano at RAF ninsale uh, and then the Hawk at RAF Valley. Was uh, fortunate enough to uh, then get uh, creamed off, which is a first tourist instructor, uh, went back to uh, Linsall News uh, and instructed on the Tucano for two and a half very happy years. As a as a young 20-something uh, instructing on a fantastic aeroplane living near the city of York, uh, it didn't get much better in my uh, um, uh, uh, humble opinion at, the, at that point. Um, and then back for uh, tactical weapons training on the Hawk at uh, RAF Valley and then onto the uh, Tornado uh, on the front line. And uh, since then, it's been... Um, uh, a mixture of uh, Tornado Frontline Tours, uh, Tornado uh, Operational Conversion Unit Tours and instructing back on the uh, uh, Tucano, all of which has been immensely enjoyable.
2: Excellent. Okay. So w- uh, what year did you first get onto the Tornado? Uh,
1: joined the Tornado feat in 2003, so, so I instructed from uh, 2000 to 2003 and then went went straight onto the Tornado up at RA of Lossiemouth in Scotland.
2: Okay. All right. Now, um, now you mentioned uh, tours. You, you've obviously flying overseas, are you able to talk about the sort of where you've been and what you've done?
1: Well, like most RF uh, uh, tornado pilots, I've um, spent a fair bit of time uh, over Iraq and a fair bit of time over Afghanistan uh, yep. and um, uh, um, tried to make a positive difference in in both those areas. And it's uh, a very uh, difficult role, but a role uh, that I believe that the uh, Royal Air Force does, to the, does uh, very well and to the best of its ability
2: indeed yes yeah uh, so all, all the way through that Air Force career uh, were you also involved in any sort of civilian flying and, and were you doing any sport flying type uh, type of thing
1: I've always enjoyed flying uh, light aircraft and a small amount of colliding um, uh, like like most people um, a fairly busy part of my life of um, uh, joining the the uh, well, joining the front line, uh, uh, and then um, through to recent years, I didn't have that much time for it. Uh, we all want more time to fly, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, I, was, I was fortunate enough to, to do some instructing on the uh, Yak 52, Yak 11, whilst I was at uh, um, uh, Lintonoos teaching formation, aerobatics, etc. Uh, and then um, in recent years, uh, um, transferred my civilian, uh, sorry, my uh, military qualified flying instructor uh, qualifications into the civil world. Uh, and uh, i've uh, started instructing on a number of uh, light aircraft now as well which is which is what i i really enjoy i, I thoroughly enjoy teaching and i thoroughly enjoy um, uh, meeting people and in, and introducing people to the uh, fantastic world that we share as pilots
2: well that's fantastic that's really good sometimes you talk to pilots and they say that the the instructing period was just for them a holding period to get onto something else but it's really good to hear uh, you know a pilot who actually loved doing the, the instructing
1: I've been fortunate enough to instruct uh, on well three tours on the Tucano, so basic fast jet training. Um, yep. I was there as a line QFI as a um, central flying school QFI, so teaching uh, the the future instructors. I then went back as officer commanding standards flight, so responsible for all the um, uh, uh, flying training of instructors and the examining of the students and instructors. And then went back for a third tour as um, OC central flying school. Uh, so. Um, uh, responsible for all uh, instructors, all student examination, um, and um, uh, the future direction of the uh, Tachano force and uh, Tachano instructing. So I, I've made it, made a bit of a uh, career out of it, but I do thoroughly enjoy it. And the um, the feeling of introducing someone to a a new environment. They've uh, spent 60 hours flying the Grob Tutor, come onto the Kano uh, uh, and wow, this is an aeroplane that is a World War II fighter as far as performance is concerned uh, and the smile on their faces after the first trip makes it all worthwhile.
2: Yeah, I'll bet, I'll bet. Uh, so um, we'll turn to the sort of the, the main topic now which of course is you've just flown halfway around the world in your little uh, Eurofox aeroplane and um Let's start at the beginning. How did you come up with the idea of doing that for a start?
1: Well, as a school kid um, reading about the likes of uh, Amy Johnson, Bert Hinkler, Gene Batten, etc., um, uh, the whole idea of uh, flying what is a classic route um, uh, has always been, on, been on, on the back burner. And then come uh, Royal Air Force 100, uh, the Royal Air Force has had... Um, uh, Global reach over, over over many many years. Uh, less so now, but uh, um, uh, certainly 40, 50 years ago, um, uh, the reach was most of the way to uh, uh, to Australia. Yeah. Um, and uh, the the opportunity to link uh, 25 or so extra Royal Air Force, extra Royal Australian Air Force, and ex Royal uh, New Zealand Air Force uh, uh, bases to to meet people, to relive the the history, and, and to rebuild uh, the um, ties with with friends along that route. Was too good a chance to miss.
2: Yeah, yeah. All oh, right. So I believe that you sort of came up with the idea in the mess with a couple of friends, was it? Or well, it's, it's been a long better? term
1: long-term goal. Uh, and um, uh, the the initial kickstart of this, this particular expedition was uh, I uh, lost my Medcat. I got a, um, a large eye infection out in Afghanistan uh, and um, temporarily lost my fast jet Medcat. Uh, and I was talking to the. Um, to the station medical officer at uh, Marham, who is now actually in the Royal New Zealand Air Force, uh, uh, Wing Commander now, West Colonel to Gus Cabra. Uh, and um, uh, w- he's always wanted to fly around the world. I'd always wanted to fly to uh, New Zealand. Uh, and um, between us on a whiteboard in his office, we uh, sketched out the initial plan. And that was five years ago. Right. Um, he, de- he then very inconveniently um, left, left the Royal Air Force, joined the Royal New Zealand Air Force, uh, so was able to uh, welcome me at Phanolipai. Uh, uh, but um, that left me uh, by myself to uh, build a team of uh, five people uh, to fly the uh, what turned out to be 20,500 miles uh, out to New Zealand. Wow. That's a long way when you say that. <laughs>
2: it's a small plane. So um, how did you come about selecting the aeroplane that you were going to take all that way?
1: We wrote down a list of uh, requirements, so minimum speed, minimum range, um, uh, obviously a a robust aircraft that we had uh, confidence in Um, and then looked at what was available on the uh, home built front in in the UK and we narrowed it down to three types. Uh, What really stood out for the Eurofox uh, was the customer support. Um, Roger Cornwall and his team uh, were absolutely superb. Within um, Within about an hour of meeting Roger at his um, um, offices, we'd found a section of wing that was um, uh, from a rebuilt aircraft. We worked out how we'd fit the extra fuel tanks in uh, and uh, uh, sketched that out and then sent that to to the manufacturer, AeroPro. Uh, Within a week, they had done the stress analysis and sent that back to the UK's Light Aircraft Association, where Francis Donaldson uh, gave us the... uh, initial okay that uh, this was likely to be viable yep. um, and it, it was that support the whole way through it's it's been a question of uh, right the answer is yes now just tell me what the question is uh, and the, 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 uns, the unswerving support uh, the whole way through has has made a huge difference when you're a long way from home and, and you need a spare part you need to know someone's gonna get out of bed during the night find it and uh, FedEx it out to you straight away
2: right Right, oh, that's fantastic. So, you, you've selected the aircraft now. Um, who built it? Was it built by the factory, or is this a home build as such? Um, did you have a team of people?
1: The Eurofox comes as a uh, very advanced kit, it's, it's about right. a 300 hour uh, build for the UK variant. It's available ready to fly in, in Australia and uh, New Zealand, but not in the UK. Ah, okay, uh, so uh, because of our, our separate rules over here, oh. uh, so um. The the kit was built to a very advanced age. I went out to cover it out uh, in Slovakia, uh, which was a great experience in its own right. Uh, And then all all you really do is firewall forwards. um, You fit the control system and you fit the avionics. uh, And we had a few extra mods to uh, fit onto it. So... um, the extra fuel tanks were in the wings already when it uh, came over. Thank you to, uh, to the factory. Yep. Uh, we've had carbon fibre cowlings on it to save weight. We've, we've put some uh, reasonable avionics in it to uh, give us the uh, capability to get out of trouble as far as IMC or night is uh, concerned, although uh, the aircraft isn't officially cleared for it. Um, and uh, we then saved weight everywhere else we could. So carbon fibre wingtips, the smallest tyres that we could uh, put on it, etc.
2: Okay, so it's uh it's a unique aircraft in itself with all the different little modifications that you've made. Uh, does the factory normally do that for people if they went there and said, "I'd like this specification, that specification"? Would they do that for everyone, or was it just because you'd told them you're flying around the world?
1: The factory does their best to accommodate people, uh, okay. and um, it's it was it a uh, unique aircraft. There is now a second one. Um, uh, and the, um, the end of that in terms flying it around Africa. Uh, oh, so, right. uh, Eurofox is, uh, starting to, um, to, to build out a slight niche with a rugged aircraft that they are willing to, um, to customize for, for various people to, uh, to take to, to interesting parts of the world. Okay. So when it was, uh, when it was built, did, did you do the TIS flying or not? I was very fortunate. The, uh, Light Aircraft Association cleared me to do the first flight. Uh, so, um, my insurance company insisted quite reasonably that I had five hours on type. So I went and yep. found a, um, a Eurofox that I could uh, g- uh, go and fly. It was a February day, not much um, not much daylight in the UK in uh, February. So I had to get five hours in in uh, about seven and a half hours of daylight. So we went off and uh, bashed a load of farm strips for uh, five hours, which was absolutely wonderful. Um, but then the first flight itself was, was May last year. So it's a very new aeroplane. Yep. Uh, and... Um, I shall always remember that uh, that evening at uh, um, a historic Wiltshire airfield, grass airfield, uh, and just pushing that uh, throttle forwards, having checked everything very, very carefully, getting airborne and climbing away in an aircraft that I built myself, and then uh, climbed up to 3,000 feet, did a couple of stalls, checked the um, uh, ASI was uh, reading sensibly, did a simulated approach and go around and then uh, came back and landed it. And uh, 10 to 15 minutes later, that was done. First first flight was done. Uh, wow. And I just sat, sat there on a summer's evening uh, or late spring evening uh, uh, with exhaust ticking going, oh, well, one hurdle over. There's still quite quite a few more to go.
2: <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, quite a few right. Um, so, Another thing I must mention, too, the colour scheme on it is uh, very evocative of the uh, Raspberry Ripple colour scheme, and I think it looks it looks really fantastic.
1: Yes, the um, Royal Aircraft Establishment, uh, Raspberry Ripple, um, almost chose itself. We were after a patriotic colour scheme. Um, we were after a historic colour scheme, and, uh, and we don't uh, put that on aircraft anymore. Yeah. Um, but also we needed it, it to be white over the fuel tanks and on the uh, composite parts uh, and um, over the upper fuselage. Uh, yeah. We needed it to be uh, highly conspicuous, which is where the red comes in. Uh, and we needed it to be dark on the uh, underside so that the uh, mud and, and oil stains and so on uh, don't uh, show as much. Uh, so uh, that, that colour scheme really did uh, choose itself. But uh, thank you. It, um, I think it works on that aeroplane. Oh it certainly does. Uh, Now um,
2: talk about planning the route and uh, you mentioned that you wanted to visit as many RAF bases as you or former RAF bases that you uh, could along the way and and you managed to do that for almost every stop didn't you?
1: Yes the only stop uh, as far as um, Perth was concerned that, that wasn't a, an ex-Royal Air Force base uh, or, or at least had uh, Royal Air Force connections was Haggadah in Egypt uh, and that was only because the, uh, the Royal Air Force base at the time has been built on and, and a new airfield built about five miles down the road. Oh. Um, so we were, we were very fortunate that we could retrace history uh, throughout um, and it shows the uh, global reach of the uh, uh, Royal Air Force in uh, days uh, gone by and indeed the uh, Royal Australian and uh, Royal uh, New Zealand Air Force's
2: Yeah, absolutely. The other thing about the route, too, is thinking about it in a very short space of time, a matter of weeks, you're flying not only across the world, but you're also flying through two different hemispheres. And one side's going to be winter, one's going to be summer. Uh, How are you sort of preparing for uh, the different extremes of temperature and um, obviously weather as well that you're going to encounter along the way?
1: We chose the time of year very carefully because uh, we needed the temperatures to be lower uh, or sufficiently low in the Middle East to make it viable in a light sport aircraft. Yeah. Uh, we also needed the uh, longer daylight hours for the Tasman and the um, the lake from Christmas Island, which was quite long. Yep. Um, but that did lead to problems in the Northern Hemisphere. So um, uh, heading east as well, we were shortening our days. Uh, so we were... Repeatedly getting airborne at uh, morning civil twilight and landing not long before evening civil twilight, uh, particularly on the legs into Karachi uh, and then uh, Nagpur, Chittagong and then into uh, Bangkok, uh, where we were still about 30 degrees north, uh, heading into winter uh, and going a substantial distance east. Um, The lowest temperature we saw was over the Alps, um, down to about minus five, and the highest temperature was Bahrain, uh, which was plus 46. So uh, during the uh, temperature variation, we we certainly tested the aircraft. In fact, we (laughs) tested the crew as well.
2: Yeah, I'll bet. That that is actually a huge margin there. Um, No, really interesting. Uh, Tell me about how you selected your co-pilots. Most of the way you had someone beside you in the aircraft, didn't you?
1: Yes, indeed. The intention was to do it all uh, with uh, two of us in the aeroplane, um, but uh, that fell apart slightly through Europe because we were late leaving. More of that later, perhaps. Um, okay. But uh, each, each person brought something to the party. So the first person was was Rachel Nugent, who's a, a meteorological officer, works for the UK Met Office, uh, and uh, was able to arrange a fantastic forecasting for us um, uh the whole way down the route both from the UK Met Office and from the Australian Bureau of uh, Meteorology who uh, took over for, uh, for Australia and New Zealand. Um, then uh, came uh, Wing Commander Kev Gatland uh, who I've done lots of operational flying in the Tornado with. He's, he's a Tornado navigator by trade yep. uh, but again um, experienced uh, uh, senior officer experienced air crew uh, and um, certainly once, once he was on board from Cyprus through to um, at nagpur in in India uh, I felt a weight lifted off my shoulders with, uh, with a second um, second experienced aviator present then scorningly uh, uh, uh Emma Landy who's a former search and rescue pilot seeking uh, search and rescue pilot uh, who I flew with from Nagpur down to Perth yep. again a fantastically experienced aviator uh, and um that really showed when we were fighting our way through the intertropical convergence zone, uh, where she's got lots of low and slow experience in the seeking fighting through weather. Uh, yeah. And uh, w- we were able to, to keep that section safe, if not make it easy, um, through a, a combination of different experience. And then across Australia, um, officer at Abby McGill, uh, who's only got six, well, started with 60 hours uh, experience on the Grob Tutor. Uh, yep. so chosen for a leg which I felt was going to be more straightforward and thankfully it was uh, and um, uh, by the end of that session she had more than doubled her uh, uh, flying experience but the uh, requirement there was someone who could uh, fly on instruments uh, who had a good sense of humour and could get on with um, uh, some, some hardship uh, but was also light enough uh, so we could carry a full fuel load
2: Right, okay Oh, Cool And of course uh, this whole trip along the way, you've been sort of fundraising as well, haven't you, for the um, the RAF Benevolent Fund and the RAF Association, and I believe the Save the Children Fund.
1: We have indeed, yes, uh, the uh, two, two Royal Air Force charities, but also importantly, Save the Children, and we've we've been through some uh, some countries where uh, people are not as fortunate as uh, uh, most of us, uh, and. Um, we flew over the uh, uh, Rohingya refugee camp in uh, Bangladesh uh, with the displaced persons from uh, uh, Myanmar and that really brought it home uh, seeing the, the conditions albeit from uh, 10,000 feet but, but but getting a feel for the conditions that a huge number of people are forced to uh, live in so yes we are uh, raising funds for, uh, for those uh, three charities uh, and um, we have a version uh, Money Giving site uh, that allows people to uh, uh, contribute, and uh, that c- that can be accessed through the website, which is gb nzcom
2: Right, okay. What were your sort of your biggest concerns that you thought you might be worried about along the way?
1: The worry was always um, uh, operational worry uh, was always the section from Bangkok south to Christmas island, as uh, that was where we were expecting to meet the meet the intertropical uh, convergence zone or the uh, monsoon. Yep. Um, so, so that was the area that we expected to have problems in my biggest personal concern was to have a a technical problem or to damage the aircraft uh whilst in a remote location and a long way from uh, uh friendly help just had uh, pound and dollar signs in front of my eyes if that happened yeah um, and, and um certainly there was a feeling throughout of being a long way from the nearest help at times and the, um, to butterworth to the royal australian air force there um, being among very genuine friends for the first time in a while um, was um, uh, a weight uh, lift off my shoulders. We we got the aircraft into um, into the hangar, did did uh, did an oil change, thoroughly checked it, and I knew that if I found something that uh, meant that meant that we couldn't go on, that I could leave the aircraft there safely, uh, right. not get ch- charged the earth for it, and then work out what what we were going to do. But the feeling from Cyprus through to uh, Butterworth was. There's no way I can really leave this aircraft i've I've got to carry on or it's going to get very expensive
2: yeah yeah i can I can certainly see that um, did you have any uh issues with um passing from one country to the other with uh, uh, uh you know bureaucrats messing you about that sort of thing i I've heard a lot of people who have flown around the world, particularly in India, they always seem to get the runaround, if you know what I mean.
1: We had an agent working for us, uh, Mike Gray of White Rose Aviation, uh, who who arranges permits um, for uh, for aircraft as a uh, professional career, yes. and his experience w- w- uh, was invaluable. So from Cyprus through to uh, Christmas Island, um, overflight permits uh, and landing permits um, were all organised by Mike, and that, that that took a weight off our shoulders. It didn't stop the problems, um, yes. but it but it meant that at least the uh, correct form was uh, filled in. Where do we have challenges? Uh, Crete was a bit of a challenge, uh, okay. and, and that, was, that was purely because we, um, we were a day late. We'd slipped our civilian PPR, but we'd, we'd, we'd forgotten that we needed parallel military PPR uh, for the particular airfield uh, concerned. Uh, but um, that was sorted out 24 hours later. Yep. Um, the only place that uh, I, was, I was met by a, um, a request for extra money that we weren't expecting to pay was India, but that was quickly sorted out. But actually, ironically, that the, the hardest country, as far as flying the aircraft to it and in it uh, uh, was concerned, has actually been uh, New Zealand, where uh, oh. we've had considerable challenges. Um, really, Dark contrast uh, to Australia, that was that was very straightforward. Um, New Zealand has been lots of paperwork and some some very last-minute decisions. Wow, I'm I'm
2: not really too surprised. <laughs> There's a lot of bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what about, um, you had, uh, right at the start, uh, when you were trying to leave uh, Britain, you had weather issues, didn't you, that sort of delayed you a bit?
1: Yeah, we had a, a storm come through, uh, and unfortunately that left behind a, a stationary cold front that just sat over uh, our, our home airfield for for, for three days. So yeah. uh, I, I spent three days uh, camping in the flying club, looking at the weather and uh, trying desperately to uh, get out of uh of of the airfield in wiltshire which we finally managed uh, 500 foot cloud base, uh, clear of cloud inside of the surface and uh, worked our way uh, da- down the river to uh, uh, bournemouth and uh, out over out over the english channel and the weather rapidly improved and uh, down across france we were into glorious weather on a on a tuesday afternoon uh, but right. that, that, that late leaving uh, led to the first of many uh, races against Evening Civil Twilight, where we landed at Lyon about five minutes before the end of Evening Civil Twilight, uh, ah. which um, was closer than we wanted to uh, to rush it, but we couldn't get our bossing down any earlier, unfortunately.
2: Right, right. Yeah, wow. So uh, did weather play a part much along the way? I know that uh, obviously in Australia you rerouted because of weather, but um, before you got to Australia, was there much other weather issue?
1: Part of flying a uh, 300 uh, 300 kilogram aircraft halfway around the world is being very, very aware of what's going on weather-wise. It's it's very easy to get the aircraft destroyed. So um, yes, we we did have challenges in Europe. We expected that. It was uh, late autumn uh, and uh, cold with uh, a fairly warm Mediterranean Sea, so lots of instability. Uh, And at one point I was being fed Satellite pictures of the uh, cloud structure and the um, the CB cells uh, t- uh, to my phone, such that I could use it as a semi-live weather radar and fly around the cells on the way. Uh, so um, that's that's the beauty of having having an experienced co-pilot waiting f- w- uh, waiting for me at Cyprus, uh, sending me the uh, screenshots. and right. um, Once once we got to Cyprus, though, uh, we were really quite fortunate. Uh, we picked up a slight tailwind across Saudi Arabia, which which was important. Um, as it was a very long uh, leg with uh, no other alternatives. Uh, we then had relatively good weather as far as uh, Bangkok, uh, but uh, headwinds the whole way, uh, so it was taking a lot longer. So the actual weather concerns became less of an issue, but uh, daylight became more of an issue. Uh, with 25 knots on the nose with a 100-knot cruise, it does make quite an appreciable difference.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. Actually, when you mentioned too about the technology that we have now where you're getting these updated messages from your destination, that sort of thing, when you think about those people that were doing it in the 1930s that inspired you, they would have had no idea what was ahead of them, would they?
1: Three distinct advantages now um, compared to the 1920s and 30s. Um, One, as you say, is the the weather forecasting. Uh, Another is the uh, search and rescue backup. Um, So there's a reasonable, uh, very reasonable chance that if you end up in the sea a long way from land, you are going to be picked up eventually, provided you uh, have uh, sufficient survival equipment and the knowledge to uh, use it. Uh, And the um, third one is obviously GPS, a fantastic advantage. Um, It meant that we could uh, set off from Indonesia heading for uh, Christmas Island knowing that uh, uh, barring uh, a huge number of system failures. Uh, we were going to find Christmas Island, um, whereas uh, the the pioneers didn't have that, and and, and they had to change their um uh, their routes uh, uh, their routes accordingly. On the downside, uh, we've got the bureaucracy. Uh, and uh, in the twenties and thirties, the map was was uh, pink all the way. It was it was almost entirely uh, British Empire. Yes, um, yes. And um, even as far as the late forties, uh, there was gentlemen who. Uh, air coup out to um, uh, New Zealand, who um, uh, was able to leave leave the UK, I believe, with something like 35 pounds. Uh, and when he, he got to New Zealand, he he still had uh, uh, money left because wow. he he had so much good goodwill and favour on the way from the uh, Royal Air Force and from uh, BP and Shell uh, yeah. that uh, he was he was not paying for anything. Whereas I can assure you, in these days, it's 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 a lot more expensive
2: yeah i'll bet <laughs> so uh, on those long flights uh particularly overseas how do you cope with the tedium um obviously you've got somebody to talk with in that but did it get really quite boring on those flights where you haven't got much to see if it's just desert or or sea below you
1: not at all we had a very disciplined um cockpit routine so uh, uh constantly working through um uh time ground speed fuel burn uh fuel at the various possible uh, destinations, calculating the uh, point of safe return, um, and uh, we did that every 100 nautical miles, yep. uh, and then more frequently uh, when we were looking to, to change over from uh, one uh, a point of um, uh, nearest land to the next. Uh, we also swapped the controls every half an hour, uh, and we made it a point that uh, uh, whilst you're flying the aircraft, you are flying the aircraft uh, and therefore you, you you fly it accurately. You don't try and do anything else. During your half hour off, uh, that's the time that, that you have something to eat, to drink, uh, uh, move around the cockpit a bit. Uh, and we can't can't get up and walk, but we can sort of sh- shuffle around slightly and get the blood back into places that uh, blood should be yep. um, and uh, do the various calculations. So actually, the two long overwater legs, the one from Christmas Island uh, to Australia and from Lord Howe into Auckland, um, we actually passed very, very quickly because there was there was a lot to do and we and we were alert uh, uh, throughout.
2: Okay, so uh, I guess to um, talking about you know getting the circulation going again and moving about, it, it's probably actually a lot more comfortable in that than that than what you'd be used to in the tornado or the Takano, wouldn't it? You'd have a bit more room to to move, or or is it, is it quite tight?
1: it's it's quite tight and uh, those who've uh, see, seen the photographs will see that you are you are brushing shoulders uh, throughout yep. uh, you, you need, need to get on well with each other luckily the seats are, seats are pretty comfortable uh, and um, uh, the biggest problem I found was I couldn't actually straighten my legs out uh, there was no no way of getting a straight leg uh, and uh, I found with holding a slight uh, pressure on, on the right rudder pedal that my my right knee started hurting after a while so I then tried tried flying with my left uh, leg on the right rudder pedal, uh, which uh, was was interesting. But um, <laughs> uh, it, it's um, it's just a question of uh, trying to trying to uh, uh, mitigate the the uh, discomfort as uh, best you can.
2: Yeah, yeah. Sounded like you need a broom handle there. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. <that. Yeah. laughs> um. Did you have any scares along the way? Was there anything that sort of
1: frightened you that you weren't expecting? I think the, um, the there were several uncomfortable moments, uh, but but they were bound to be on, on that length of um, length of journey. Uh, perhaps the first one was uh, Chittagong to uh, Bangkok, where um, uh, unfortunately in uh, Chittagong the uh, police officer that was meant to be checking our passports was now late to work, so we were on the back foot from the word go, time wise. Uh, Set off uh, into our nicely forecast 20 knot headwind uh, to discover about halfway across Myanmar uh, where we had uh, overflight permission but no permission to land uh, that the headwind was building gradually to 25, 30, 35, 40 knots which didn't create a problem on fuel but it created a problem on daylight Uh, so calculation after calculation uh, showed that uh, we were going to be arriving at Bangkok in the dark uh, which was obviously not, uh, not legal or sensible uh, so, um, options open to us were to, to divert into Myanmar, uh, where I'm sure we'd have had a friendly reception, but the paperwork involved would have taken weeks, if not months to sort out. Right. Um, yep. so we then looked at, uh, a Thai air force base that was slightly closer than, uh, Bangkok, but it was Saturday. The, the, the base was shut, yeah. um, uh, and, uh, it was going to be a bit of a diplomatic wrangle. So, uh. We elected to uh, go for Thailand uh, and then decide once we were over the ridge. And it's not in insubstantial ridge. It's about a 6,000-foot ridge crossing there uh, of uh, tropical rainforest uh, yep. to, to then decide where, where we were going. Uh, thankfully, the, the headwinds uh, abated slightly, uh, and we were then able to make the Thai Air Force base in daylight. Okay. Uh, and then... Uh, th- they abated even more and we were able to make uh, Dom Wang at uh, Bangkok uh, just before Evening Civil Twilight. That was until we discovered a mandatory single engine routing that wasn't in the AIP, um, such that uh, we, we were then landing at night at Dom Wang, which was hard work. Uh, it was not planned, uh, it was not uh, what any of us intended to do uh but um uh it was it was an approach flown very very carefully um with uh limited outside references and and you can imagine in a light sport aircraft quite how far away the uh, runway edge lights are when you're landing in the black abyss in between um so uh that was the hardest handling of the trip was that landing which went very well indeed uh thankfully uh and Trying to taxi off was uh, w- was interesting as well. Getting a torch out to try and work out where we were on the airfield and uh, uh get ourselves off off the runway. Thankfully, <laughs> the aircraft d- does have nav lights, uh so that uh, that side of things was uh, sensible. The uh, the problem was judging the flare and touchdown in a lightweight uh, tow-wheel aircraft uh in the middle of a, of a black abyss. And I shan't yeah. be doing it, doing it again. I can assure you.
2: <laughs> I can imagine. Gee, that sounds yeah. That sounds a bit. Uh, w- what, why Why did they sort of divert you on that extra length? What's the point of that?
1: Um, Single-engine aircraft over the city of Bangkok. It's it's an entirely ah. sensible, mandatory routing, gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, but it wasn't in the AIP. Um, the, the first we knew about it was uh, speaking to the controllers uh, about 100 miles out, uh, and um, suddenly our, our ETA changed. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. wow. Well. So, uh, now, I know that
2: you... Uh, you weren't able to take much with you in terms of uh, anything on board with with uh, clothing that, that you got to take along the way and any food to eat. Or uh, tell me tell me about how light that you were flying with.
1: We had um, uh, most of our baggage was actually survival equipment, so the dinghy, uh, reverse osmosis pump, flares, uh, VHF radio, etc. Uh, so um, our personal baggage was uh, somewhat light. I started off with um, a, a polo shirt a pair of trousers a pair of shoes uh, and um, two, a spare roll neck for my flying suit and a few a few pairs of underwear got as far as Rome decided that I couldn't fit things in so uh, got rid of the shoes so I had just uh, flying boots from, the, from there onwards right. so really w- we were talking about a, a kilo or a kilo and a half of uh, baggage each um, which requires one to, one to be disciplined. And it did mean that um, on occasion we were found wanting. Um, uh, one was uh, going to a rather nice um, club in uh, uh, Karachi for lunch uh, and desperately trying to find a shirt. Uh, thank you to the British Embassy for finding a shirt. Wow. Um, and uh, a- also the uh, dining in night at uh, pie at uh, at the end, where um, Abby and I were the uh, scruffy ones in flying suits rather th- rather than in mess dress, but there was no way mess dress was going to fit in the aeroplane.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I actually did wonder about that. I was wondering maybe he- he- had you uh, forwarded on your mess dress, you know, carried it on or something, but no, you were in your flying suit.
1: <laughs> yes, made apologies to the PMC and uh, bought, bought a uh, bottle of port each, as the uh, uh, tradition demands.
2: Ah, fantastic. <laughs> right, and... Um we've kind of briefly mentioned uh that you cut out some of the stops because of the weather um so <laughs> when you had to make that decision in australia that you weren't going up over the top and you were going down the bottom was this a a pre-planned possible thing that might happen or did you have to make that decision uh you know on the way sort of thing
1: we were always going to be pushing our luck as far as the timing of the start of the wet season was concerned in the north of Australia, uh, and therefore we had the the plan of of going south as well. Okay. Um, part of flying is knowing when to say no, uh, and we we looked at the uh, the TAFs so over that northern section during the week before we were planning on uh, leaving Perth, uh, and it was it was not viable. It was a surefire way to uh, get the aircraft damaged or destroyed, or or worse, yeah. uh, so um, in the end, thankfully, it was an easy decision. Uh, if there's 55 knots in the TAF at Darwin, uh, that's not the place for a light sport aircraft. So uh, we we headed south. That said, we then met some unseasonal weather um, in the sort of Sid, uh, Sydney, Adelaide, Melbourne area. Uh, so had to uh, route north of our intended uh, stops at East Dale and uh, uh, on on that southern section. Um, Purely because of the of the weather we were we were uh, reactive throughout right
2: okay all right now, when you went to go from Australia across to New Zealand, your original plan was I believe to fly directly, weren't you? you weren't going to go to uh, Lord Howe originally is that right
1: that's right, yes, and it, it was a big big jigsaw puzzle um, you've got the uh, uh, national Pre- uh, passenger uh, processing committee uh, In Australia, uh, you've got the various New Zealand uh, organisations that uh, need to know where you're going to arrive. Um, And we were trying to set up flying from uh, Coffs Harbour to Kerry Kerry. Um, But both organisations required considerable notice, uh, 10 days and 8 days, uh, working days that is, to nominate the exact day uh, to to do the uh, crossing. Right, Um, yep. Uh, and it rapidly became obvious that there was no way we were going to be able to call a day for the crossing that far in advance as far as weather was concerned. No. Um, So I I, I believe the one time it's been done in a similar uh, weight of aircraft was uh, Ben Buckley from Tasmania to uh, South Island, uh, and he did it highly illegally and was arrested when he landed. Um, That was not not an option that uh, we could do. It uh, needed to be totally official. And right. the 10, 8 and 5 working days notice just wasn't going to work. Thankfully, the Australians were extremely accommodating and uh, said that they were able to um, offer 24 hours notice at Lord Howe because there is one person there, Rachel, who does everything, uh, Border Force, uh, Customs, uh, Biosecurity, all, all one person. She also worked, yep. uh, works in the restaurant. Um and, uh, <laughs> She she was able to be totally flexible, so thank you to the Australian uh, National Passenger uh, Processing Committee and to Rachel on uh, Lord Howe for uh, for giving us the option of um, uh, twenty four hours notice, pitch up at Lord Howe, and then fly direct to Auckland, where obviously there's a standing border force uh, a, a capability already. Yeah, and
2: I, and I believe that uh, adding Lord Howe into the trip is pro- it, it was one of the highlights for you, wasn't it? Because that there, um, I mean, it's a it's a it's a place in the middle of the ocean little wee tiny island in the middle of the ocean and then you get there and, and everybody's quite wonderful they're out there it, that's what everyone I've talked to who's who's gone that route across Australia stopped in Lord Howe they just think it's a, an amazing place
1: Lord Howe was stunning both from the um the people and the place uh, right. and with thanks to uh, Rachel and, and Peter and everyone else who helped us out uh, so much on uh Lord Howe the the place is uh, dramatic. You've got both Pyramid to the south. You've got the huge uh, uh, mountains, well, huge mountains, but uh, two and a half thousand foot peaks uh, sticking out of the sea. Uh, a dramatic airfield with, with uh, s- some interesting uh, wind effects. And whilst, whilst we were at Lord Howe, we, we still didn't have uh, permission to fly into New Zealand. We were, we were still waiting on the uh, New Zealand CAA. Uh, and there is not much connectivity there. So uh, thank you to, to all those who uh, managed to find us connectivity on an island where uh, it is dial-up broadband, uh, sorry, dial-up internet still. Uh, and uh, to Peter, who said, well, if you're stuck here, uh, you can't leave, leave that aircraft outside. We will shift that Cessna 182 over. We will find, find space in that hangar uh, come come, come hell or high water. So um, thank you to that island community who uh, rallied around whilst, whilst we j- just didn't know what was going on.
2: Yeah, that's brilliant. And I, and I think it was a big thrill to them too. I know Peter was certainly thrilled that you guys came through r- rather than uh, going the direct route like you were planning. So, But uh, I I was watching you on the tracker for a lot of your trip all the way. Uh, you had the um, GPS tracker that you could follow online, and I was certainly watching you uh, coming across the Tasman. And um, I I was kind of expecting you to land at Kirikiri, but you, you reached New Zealand and then kept on going south, didn't you?
1: Yes, Kerry Kerry was the original plan, so Coffs Harbour to Kerry Kerry is about 1100 nautical miles, which in still air is uh, within the capability of the aircraft. Uh, what we chose in the end was Lord Howe to Auckland, uh, which with the route we, route we took was about um, uh, about 960 nautical miles uh, to make landfall up, up north and then come south. Uh, the reason for that was that uh, Kerry Kerry uh, required five working days' notice to nominate it as a point of arrival, uh, and we, we were just unable to uh, give that. So, right. um, hence the Lord Howe, Auckland option. But yes, it was it, w- it was rather nice coasting in just at the southern end of uh, Ninety Mile Beach uh, and um, heading down down th- uh, through a a very familiar part of New Zealand uh, to Auckland. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the um, the moment for me wasn't the uh, coasting in. It was during our. Oh, our calculations are leaving Lord Howe and then, right, the closest is Lord Howe, the closest is, is now Norfolk Island, right, the co- closest is now Cape Cape Yeah. So we're either swimming or, or we're making it to New Zealand. That was the uh, moment of, we've, we've done this.
2: Fantastic. Fantastic. And and when you actually touched down in, uh, in Auckland um, after that epic journey across the world, how did that feel?
1: Um, we were more worried about uh, the the fact that the wind was a lot stronger than forecast actually so we had 30 knots straight down the strip at Auckland uh, which is fine for landing and virtually hover the aircraft on but uh, then being asked to expedite off the runway uh, I um, uh, I've been teaching flying for a long time I've told people time and time again don't get don't get rushed by someone who is sitting in an air traffic control tower with a cup of coffee, sticking um, sitting there with their feet up uh, when they don't quite understand what, what you're going through. Um, so I, I tried to get off as quickly as I could uh, with an A320 at short finals behind me, got airborne again landed it again. Uh, and um, at that point, decided that I was going to taxi rather more slowly. Uh, <laughs> and then... <laughs> A fairly emotional downwind taxi with 30 knots behind us um, uh, down to the, uh, uh, the FBO, who then insisted that we park downwind. Um, there was a Mexican standoff. Uh, I was trying to signal that I had to, had to park into wind. Uh, yep. She was trying yep. to signal that it, w- it was mandatory to park facing the terminal. Uh, eventually, I'd, I decided just to park, uh, 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 park into wind, as that was the uh, safe thing to do. Um, at which point the poor lady downed her uh, tools and uh, walked off and, however after after we'd explained um uh, nicely over coffee afterwards what our uh, concerns were she was entirely happy and apologized <laughs> so uh, it's it's all about understanding we've seen time and time again people people want to help but they often don't understand how to help in an in an unusual situation yeah
2: and i guess something as small as what you were flying and they don't normally see flying to Auckland international so um, you know, she wouldn't She wouldn't handle something that every day, would she?
1: No, it's the lightest aircraft ever to fly from the, from the UK to New Zealand, as far as we can tell. OK. Um, and uh, we think it is the lightest aircraft to have flown the Tasman. Uh, even Ben Buckley's uh, light wing, when it was filled up with all the fuel that he carried for his Rotax 2-stroke, 2, two stroke, was heavier than us. We're a 560-kilo aeroplane at 308 kilos empty. So, uh, yes, it, it it does get blown around a bit.
2: Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Well, that's, some, that's quite amazing. Um, and then, uh, of course, from there, you, um, you were in New Zealand for, was it a week or so, maybe just over a week? You got to see a bit of the country as well.
1: Yes, we a week and a half exploring the uh, fantastic country. Um, so uh had a rest day on the uh, Friday, and then uh, the Saturday went around um, uh, Ardmore, uh, North Shore, a um, wear, uh, photo, uh Photography uh, sortie up to Kuiper Flats and so on, so had a good look around the Auckland area, and then went south. So uh, a haka um, down down to a marker and into Hastings to uh, um, fly with the uh, Gypsy Moth uh, um, out of Hastings. Now that aircraft flew out in 1934, uh, yes. and um, we were fortunate enough to be uh, uh, shown the uh, maps from the route, uh, and. Um, uh, we picked up Singapore uh, as one possible option uh, and then look, looked at our map and um, uh, the map from 1934 and nine turning points, they were all identical. Wow! We'd t- taken off from, from the same airfield which was uh, then Royal Air Force Solitar, it's now a business jet airfield, Solitar airfield. Yeah. Um, we'd flown nine turning points that were all the same and It just shows that single-engine aircraft uh, over high terrain and and large sea tracks, the the considerations are still the same. We've both chosen uh, minimum sea track, avoiding the high ground, uh, and and sensible navigation figures. The description of uh, Solitar, though, has changed. Uh, Now it is a 6,000-foot tarmac runway uh, where where business jets for um, high-net-worth individuals uh, tend to go in. Then it was uh, noted as 1,000 yards by 600 yards, grass is in good condition, Suitable for all types of types of machines. Warning: In use for polo on uh, Wednesday afternoons.
2: <laughs> that's brilliant.
1: <laughs> wow, that's uh,
2: that, that's really that's really good that you uh, got to sort of have that experience. That it, it sort of ties it all together, isn't it? The 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 original inspiration was one of yeah that that aircraft was one of those aircraft that flew right across the world back in the
1: 19, Was it thirty two? Did you say? 1934, it's a 1929 34. aircraft, but, but the trip was uh, 1934, uh, yeah. and um, very similar time of year as well. It was, it was October, November, uh, similar to us, uh, and uh, we were fortunate enough to, to do an air-to-air formation sortie as well, so um, some, some, some photos available of that, but uh, Brilliant. Uh, yeah, fantastic hosting, and thank you.
2: That's fantastic, and, and uh, then you had the job of uh, pulling the wings off and putting it in a container, didn't you?
1: Yes, indeed. The the poor aircraft is uh, still at North Shore being uh, uh, put into an ISO container to come back the the slow way, although it's not that slow. It's a 47 day sea journey uh, in an ISO container. So hopefully in mid-March, a bit before Brexit, um, we we should get the aircraft back. And uh, uh, I'm I'm very keen on uh, getting flying again before too long.
2: Cool. And um, what's the future with uh, you and the aeroplane? Will you sort of take it around uh, events as a famous aeroplane now or will you just fly it as, as your aeroplane or what, what, what do you hope to do?
1: Well, it will hopefully become the uh, family aeroplane, but um, one of our aims has been to promote science, technology, engineering and uh, mathematics among young people. And we've, we've managed to uh, uh, present to 33 separate youth groups as we uh, uh, progressed across the world, uh, quite a few in uh, uh, New Zealand. Uh, and um, I'm, I'm hoping to continue to, to use the aircraft to uh, uh, promote uh, youth in aviation, but also youth in the wider subjects uh we are in the u k and and I know in new Zealand as well desperately short of engineers and scientists and the more we can encourage people at twelve thirteen fourteen to to consider that uh, a career as a viable and an interesting option the better
2: yeah that's that's wonderful that's fantastic uh, well i mean we've pr- pretty much covered the 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 trip pretty well and it and it's it's certainly an amazing adventure do you think you'd you'd do it all again would you do something else or or do you just want to sort of leave it at that and and get back to normal life now
1: I'm keen to, keen to do something similar uh, again um probably not the same route um done that and uh, met those challenges and met fantastic people yeah. uh perhaps the, perhaps the other way uh but the uh, uh priority now is to um uh, give some t- time to the family and uh, um spend some time time in the UK catching up with the uh, the family and the day job so a few years time perhaps
2: excellent excellent well thank you very much i i really appreciate uh you taking the time to uh talk about this it, it's been quite a uh f- for me i i first heard about this quite a long time ago from jonathan he said oh this is going to happen and it's in the future but I'll, I'll let you know and he kept giving me little bits of information and uh and it got more and more exciting as the as the uh start date sort of came closer and then, of course, Jonathan started uh, posting all the updates onto the Wings Over New Zealand forum, which I, I run, and uh, the momentum was building there as well as on your Facebook page, and there was certainly a lot of people following it, and uh, yeah, it was, it was really good to meet you when you got to Ardmore that day as well. It was fantastic.
1: Well, it's been a great pleasure, Dave, and um, if I could say, say thank you to everyone who's helped us along the way. We've had so many people... Um, from the, um, the agent in uh, Karachi who spotted that we were tired, uh, tired and hungry and uh, took us for lunch. Uh, as he said, uh, um, that was his, his duty as a Muslim, but he, um, he, he looked after us absolutely superbly. Uh, looking after us as uh, um, travellers, to, to right. everyone down um, down route who has who who really gone out of their way to make our lives easier and um, to introduce us to people. So thank you to everyone uh, uh, for that, including you, for um, facilitating lots of what we did in uh, uh, New Zealand.
2: Oh, yeah, no worries. Uh, and uh, you're back at work now, back uh, with the RF.
1: Back-in-the-day job. I'm uh, going into a meeting in about 15 minutes, yes.
2: Okay. <laughs> well, that okay. I'd better let you go. <laughs> well, thanks very much indeed. I really appreciate it.
1: it a great pleasure, Dave. Th- thank you very much indeed, and uh, uh, keep in touch. I uh, will. Yeah, cheers. Much appreciated, Dave. Take care. Cheerio. Cheers. Bye-bye. That was the Wings
2: Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.
1: Come, uh, Royal Air Force 100, uh, that was a very good reason to um, put it into practice. My apologies, Monday morning fire alarm.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: purely a test. be back you in the second, day.
2: That's good. I thought maybe it was a scramble.
1: <laughs> We're almost there. Attention, please. Attention, please. Fire has been reported in the building. Please leave the building immediately by the nearest available exit.
2: The fire alarm system is about to be...
1: The fire alarm test is now complete. Thank you for your cooperation. I'm now back with you. Right. (laughs)